I call with my heart, answer me, O Lord. I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, O Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Hey, good stuff, forever. Okay, Loretta is in here. I hope she's all right. Um, <clears throat> let's see, we have um, only one prayer request. We have um, Jonathan, who attends online out in Oregon. And his business was broken into this uh, past weekend. And when I say broken in, they drove a truck through the front of the building and, uh, to steal the ATM and all the other things he has in there. So keep him in prayer. Anybody online that wants to help, that he has a GoFundMe, please let me know. I'll tell you how you can help with that. I'll send you the link. Uh, you know, that community has helped to some extent, but he says it is not enough. And so he's uh, facing kind of trouble there. Uh, great guy. I hear from him almost is every he in day. in Portland? It's Portland, Portland, yeah. Beaverton, which is. It's a yeah, suburb. That's suburb where we started off there. Beaver. Yep, Beaverton. Okay, so we are in. Uh, <clears throat> I don't even know what day it is. Twenty. Today is the twenty-fifth. Twenty-fifth. Okay, and it's uh, January still. So, let's see here. Twenty-five January. The superstition. Emperor Nerva died suddenly on January twenty-fifth, ninety-eight. Was succeeded by his adopted son Trajan. The young man was a soldier, a general with rigid posture, vigorous energy, and conservative ideas. He proved a tireless and able administrator, lowering taxes publishing a budget and cutting the cost of government. His building projects benefited the empire and in contrast to fellow emperors, he remained faithful to his wife. Trajan sent his advisor Pliny the Younger to Bithynia when troubling reports arose in 110 about corruption there. Arriving at the Black Sea, Pliny encouraged Christians and he didn't know what to do with them. His famous letter to Trajan, the earliest extant Roman document regarding Christianity, which Pliny called a superstition, described a worship service and asked for advice. Their guilt or error amounted to this. On an appointed day, they meet before the daybreak, recite a hymn antiphonally to Christ as to a God, and bind themselves by an oath to abstain from theft, robbery, adultery, and breach of faith. After the conclusion of this ceremony, it was their custom to depart and make again to take food. But it was ordinary and harmless food. I applied to, I'm sorry, I applied torture to two maidservants who were called deaconesses. But I found nothing but a depraved and extravagant superstition. The matter seemed to justify my consulting you, especially on account of the number of those imperiled. Many of all ages and classes and of both sexes are being put in peril by accusation. This superstition has spread not only in the cities, but in the villages and rural districts as well. Trajan wrote back and his answer established Roman policy, policy for years. It was a don't ask, don't tell policy. Christians, he said, were not to be tracked down like animals, but if any were found in the normal course of affairs, they were to be punished. If they recanted, they were to be pardoned. 
Though moderate, Trajan became the first to persecute Christians as, a distinct, as distinct from the Jews. And among those who perished under his reign was Ignatius, bishop of Antioch. I praise and honor God Most High. When God does something, we cannot change it or even ask why. Daniel 4, 34, and 35. So, there you go with that. Uh, let's see, we got that, we got that. And good evening, Miss Garrett. How are you? Heavenly Father, we're very thankful that Miss Garrett arrived safely. Uh, we're asking for uh, help for Jonathan in uh, Oregon and just pray that his needs will be met and that uh, uh, he'll be able to get his business back going and uh, taking care of his family again. And we lift up anybody that is sick or in pain or in trouble. Uh, Danielle comes to mind. She's getting better by the day I hear. And so we just want to lift her up to you and ask that you continue to help her through uh, her recovery. And Lord, uh, we just ask that your hand would be upon any person that is sick or in need or having troubles or trials right now, that they would lift their eyes to you and above all else know that you are the creator and that you have a good plan and a purpose for us no matter what happens. We thank you. We pray for this class, and we pray that uh, uh, the doctrine will be sound and that you'll be pleased with it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we have uh, 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 1, and uh, we're in verse 5 today. And so, uh, beginning of the paragraph. Yeah. I urge you, when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. So that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Okay, now the purpose of this commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So very close. All right, let's see here. What we have? Uh, Paul now gives a contrasting thought to what was given starting in verse 3. It may therefore be better translated as but the purpose instead of now. The word translated as purpose is telos. It signifies an end goal, okay? Um, do I explain any more? No, telos. Think of telescope, okay? You're stretching out the telescope and eventually you come to the place where you want to be. So, Tell us, it's uh, the end goal of the commandment is. Um, he now relates what the purpose or end goal of the commandment is. Because of the word commandment, some have taken this to mean the law of Moses. In fact, you'll see the Hebrew roots people use that and all of John. John says, now I give you this commandment or if we obey his commandments and they shove the law right back in your face, ignoring everything else that the New Testament says about God's grace in Christ and that the law is annulled, it is obsolete, it is superseded, it is nailed to the cross, etc. They ignore all of that and they say, see it says commandment and therefore you have to observe the law of Moses and if you're not, you're going to heck. Well, uh, that's just the way that they are and that has nothing to do with it. Okay, So but, there's been no commands according to them since Moses came down off the mountain? Yeah, you know, it, it's just bad thinking. It's just, it, it, whatever. Um, so it says because of the word commandment, they've taken the laws of Moses. In essence, the purpose of the law of Moses, that they're paraphrasing what this verse to them means. This is held to by scholars such as John Calvin. The claim is that the false teachers mentioned in verse 3 and 4 were improperly using the law of Moses to come to erroneous conclusions when in fact its purpose is what Paul will next describe. 
This is not the intent. The false teachers may have been misusing the law, but he was as much focused on fables they were introducing, things with no true relation at all to the law. Instead, Paul's words concerning the commandment are referring to verse 3, where he said that you may charge some. He's now making a commandment for the people. That doesn't mean that they're going to lose their salvation if they don't do it, but it is a command. You are to do these things. You may charge some. In verse 3, he used the verb form of the noun found in this verse. Now, the purpose of the commandment. Okay, so we'll go there and you started with four today, didn't I did, you? And that's where it was. Many, many, you, may, you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine. There you go. All right. I, and this one says, I urged you when I went to Macedonia that you charge some. Okay. But he's referring to that commandment. It's not the law of Moses. It's not speaking of that at all. It is referring to the commandment that he had just given. Now, the purpose of the commandment. Okay. And, and, and your uh, verse 5 does say commandment, not command? Uh, well, it wouldn't matter, but yeah, this one says commandment. It's okay. a noun, so right. um, uh, you have one as a verb form, charge is how they translated this one, but what he could have done to maybe avoid the problem would be to say, now I command, and right. then the right. purpose of the commandment. And Burke's got his finger up. In ASB, says instruction. Instruction. The goal of the instruction. Instruction. There you go. Either way, though, you could what you could do is you say in verse 3, now I instruct you. And then he could say here, and the purpose of the instruction is. What they should have done is kept the word the same. Right. Use the same, because it's the noun is coming from the verb. Yeah. And so they should have kept it the same, and it would have avoided a lot of confusion. But, um, you know, it's just not the law of Moses. That's the main thing, whether it's an instruction, a command, a charge, however you want to translate it, it should be understood that verse 5 is referring to what he just said in verse 3. Okay. And I'd be good, right. Huh. Well, so they said command and commandment? Command and command. Okay, good. Um, understanding this, the word commandment signifies a practical teaching. It is something announced from close beside and therefore fully authorized. That's helps word studies definition of that word. Okay, read it again. Something announced from close beside and therefore fully authorized. Okay, <clears throat> this is what Paul is instructing. So you could say instructing and instruction. Okay, you got a verb and you got a noun. It's, he's doing something here that is now being explained here. Okay, so let's see here. Um, this is what Paul is instructing Timothy to now accomplish. And it is this charge to Timothy, the purpose is that, uh, I better read that again, it is this charge Timothy is to pursue that has a purpose of love from a pure heart. Paul's words once again, love from a pure heart, okay? This indicates a heart of holiness, not one which is self-centered or which exalted one over another. It is comparable to Jesus' words found in Luke chapter 10. So we'll go to Luke chapter 10, and it says... Got to go a little farther. Charlie Jeremiah is before Luke. Um, we've got chapter 10. And then we'll go to verse 27. And it says there in verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing... That's not what I want at all. That's chapter 9. you got to be in the right chapter, Charlie. Okay, so 27. Um, let's see here. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, okay? So it's the same basic intent, love with a pure heart, okay? It's not self-centered. It is a heart of holiness. It is 
not exalted over others. Okay, so uh, that is the substance of man's duty given from the law itself, according to Jesus. As he said, this, is, this sums up the whole law. This right here sums up the law and the prophets. Okay, and then uh, Paul continues that the purpose of the commandment, instruction, charge, however you want to call it, is to be from a good conscience. This is contrasted to the other doctrine of verse 3, which led to disputes in verse 4. So you can see what he's doing. He's building one verse upon the next and one idea upon the next. Only a defiled conscience would submit such heretical and outlandish things. And that's what people do when they're, you know, I had a lady not long ago and uh, she uh, watched the, the uh, Table of Nations, okay, and she's from the Black Hebrew Roots Movement, okay, it permeates Africa, it's all over America, they believe that they are the true Jews, okay, and they've been convinced this, and so she uh, uh, sent me an email about my analysis of Genesis chapter 10. And she was saying, well, actually, we are the line of Shem, and the Jews, et cetera, are all the line of Ham, and you've got it all backwards. And she gave the completely made-up evidence for her case. And then uh, she said, and these people that uh, uh, are Jews in the Bible are all black people. They're not. And so I took her one at a time through each one of them. And I, you know, I said, um, uh, okay, so in the Song of Solomon, when it says that Solomon is ivory, Okay, and she said, well, ivory goes from, you know, white all the way down to almost black. Well, when it's not polished, yeah, that's true. But anyway, um, uh, you know, I was thinking of the song Paul McCartney and uh, what's it? Ebony, Ebony and, and ivory. ivory. Okay, it's very clear. You got black and you got white. Okay, and th so I said, okay, and then I took her to Lamentations and I said that the Nazarites were as pure as uh, white as milk. And she said, well, that's milk with blood in it. And so it's, it's you know, and then, um, you know, I went through each one of them, white as snow, you know, the the wool, which we'll see in the Sunday sermon with the fleece. Okay, I went through all these. And that is the kind of thinking that Paul is talking about back there. Uh, let me read that again. Now, this is just one crazy email that I get, and I get piles of them, okay? But that one just came to mind. Um, it says, um, uh, what she is doing is exactly what, the left is trying to get the whole world to do, right. is to divide, not to say the colors don't matter. They were making a point about how handsome Solomon was, okay? And when they were talking about the Nazarites, it, they were white as uh, milk, and uh, it, it's talking about purity. It's, it, don't worry about the skin color so much. It's just the fact that these people were Nazarites. They were living for the Lord, etc. Okay, you know, it, just because the Bible contrasts black and white as good and bad, that does not transfer to human beings. Okay, but this is the thinking. It's the demented thinking of the left, and it's the demented thinking of people that have to co-opt something from Scripture that does not belong to them. Having said that, what does it say here? Uh, uh, the disputes, only a defiled conscience. Think of this person and the people that taught her this so that now she's completely off in all of her theology. Only a defiled conscience would submit such a heretical and outlandish thing. What Timothy was to charge was to be of sound mind and in accord with the truth of the gospel. A gospel which is from sincere faith. That's Paul's words again, from sincere faith. Okay, so you want to be careful who you listen to because there are 15 billion people out there that have their own little agenda. 
and they're going to do everything they can to twist you away from the truth. Whether it's the Black Hebrew Roots Movement, or it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Mormons, you just go on and on and on. We're not talking about a small number of people, and within the Mormons, you probably have how many? We'll say 50,000 teachers, or you know, there's millions of Mormons, so we'll say 100,000 teachers. I don't know. Every one of them will have their own little pet peeve that they are going to be putting into their people. Okay, they're already in a cult. They already are not following the grace of God in Christ, so they all have something that will misdirect their people away from the truth. All right, if you happen to go to a Mormon church not knowing what you're getting into and you listen to this guy, polygamy's okay or whatever, be careful. Be careful what you allow into your mind. Know your Bible first so that you don't have to be led astray. Okay. Yeah, I got somebody shaking her head over here agreeing with that. Know your Bible. Okay, I will stop right now, though, because somebody emailed and they asked, what is the main way that you know that you're not being uh, misled from Scripture? When they're reading the Bible and they want to know they're not misleading themselves, what is it that is most important? You know this by heart. Well, I they're, do, but should I say it or should somebody else? Well, does anybody want to tell me what is the best way to know that you are not being led? I'm talking about your form of study. Is it descriptive? Is it prescriptive? Context? Context. Context. Okay, there you go. Those are the five basic rules. If you follow those five basic rules, when you're reading the Bible, you won't lead yourself astray. Okay? Does this prescribe something or is it simply describing? Okay, I've said this about the book of Acts. It is a descriptive book. Very, very, very little prescription in Acts. And yet, 99% of the error in the church today comes because of people mishandling the book of Acts. It may not be 99, it might be 98.97. Okay, but it's very high. All right, they've taken something from Acts and they have prescribed it. And that's inappropriate. Ask yourself when you're reading Acts, is this telling me to do something or is it simply describing? When Peter gets up and says to the people of Israel, you know, repent and be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit, is he prescribing something for you or is he simply telling what was said at the time? Because if you read the rest of Acts, you'll find out that it doesn't match what other people are saying about the same issue. Therefore, it's simply describing it, okay? Um, and then the context, who is being written to, what dispensation is being discussed, etc. If you follow those five rules, especially the last three, you will really avoid a lot of trouble in your own thinking as you are reading the Bible because you are reading the Bible so that you know the Bible so that when somebody tells you something about the Bible, you know whether he is at least in the right room or not. Okay, and then from there you can say, well, he took that out of context or he made that prescriptive when it's only descriptive, etc. cetera. Or he okay. didn't read the very next sentence. He didn't read the next sentence. He just pulled, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I said this, um, I think it was last, uh, it was, it was last Thursday, and I learned this from Don. So Don is here today because his beautiful wife is out traveling, and so um, here we go. I can do all things with a verse out of context. You take a verse, you can do anything with it, okay? So there, I learned that from him, and I'll be saying that the rest. I say it to myself when I'm walking around, you know, after reading some crazy email in the morning, I'll be taking out the garbage at the mall, and I'll think, I can do that. I can do all things with the verse out of context. So thank you for that. Um, anyway, the uh, word sincere, uh, Paul said the gospel which is from sincere faith. 
The word sincere is used by Paul in connection with the word love in Romans 12 and in 2 Corinthians 6. It will be used in connection to wisdom in James chapter 3. Let me make a quick note here. And let's see here. The word indicates without hypocrisy. The false doctrines of the Judaizers were introduced with false motives. They were intended not to honor Christ, but to bring honor to themselves. That's exactly what you're going to see when you go into a legalistic church. You're going to see people that want to lord authority over other people by telling them you have to wear shoes or you've got to wear dress past your knees or whatever it is that their pet peeve that is not in scripture is based on some defect of their thinking that they now need to wield over the other people. I don't care what it is. If it is not in scripture and they are telling you to do it, that is somebody that is taking advantage of that precept. Hebrew Roots is exceptionally good at it. They were the Judaizers of today. The Judaizers of the past were the Hebrew Roots today. But the, fault, the Judaizers is just a term we use because at the time these were Jews, okay? They were telling the people that had come to Christ, especially the Gentiles, you need to do this and you need to do this. And Paul argues throughout all of his epistles against them. And the church did not listen and so at this point in human history, we're right back where we were 2,000 years ago with these congregations all over the place reimposing what Paul said, don't do this, okay? So, um, without hypocrisy, uh, false motives, they were intended not to honor Christ but to bring honor to themselves. This is the polar opposite of what should be the case. An example of that from Paul is where he said that, um, uh, you know, talking about circumcision, they want to boast in your flesh. I got that person circumcised. That was me. He wasn't circumcised. He came to Christ and I told him it was wrong. And he is saying, that's my boast. It's about him. It's not about that guy that was cut for absolutely no reason at all. It's about them being able to say, I did this. Okay. It's when somebody, uh, you know, and now I understand there are times where somebody is young in the faith and they are so anxious to say about Jesus that uh, uh, they tell him and then they come to church on Sunday and they say, I saved somebody. And you have to kind of correct them and say, no, Jesus saved them. You told them about Jesus. But there are people that continue that type of thought, not the exact words, but that type of thought all their lives. I, you know, I, I, and you know, that's not necessary. Do your job and don't go bragging about all the people you led to Christ. It's not, it's pointless. Okay. You do your job. And that's all that needs to happen, okay? Um, and it's fine to talk about when you talk to somebody about Christ. I mean, gee whiz, you, you know, you can give ex examples of how this person learned uh, or you learned because of your presentation to them and you saw, that's fine. You're helping other people process that as well. But to just say, well, I've led 892 people to Christ, that's about you. That becomes about you. So be careful with that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm not saying that you... Anyway, just, you know, the more you make it about Jesus, the better off you'll be. That's, right. that's okay. Um, Paul, in his charge, a complete contrast to the workings of the false teachers was to be made. Paul expected Timothy to handle this matter in a way which would be sincere and honoring of Christ. Anything else would be unsuitable to the calling in which he stood. Life application. For the pastor, preacher, or teacher of the word... He is to conduct his duties with sincerity of faith.
displaying an attitude which reflects a good and undefiled conscience and put forth teachings which demonstrate a pure heart towards God, towards the word, and towards those whom he is instructing. Anything less would be contradictory to the calling of the office. Remember that this is an epistle written about church leadership. And so 1, 2, Timothy, and Titus are all in that. So when I give the life application, it's going to be about somebody that either is a preacher or somebody that wants to be a preacher or somebody who's a deacon or wants to be a deacon. This is who it's addressed to. But everybody can learn from this because you should be evaluating the people that you are going to church under. Okay. Um, did you notice how Steve and, and Rick both bailed on us today? I did notice that. Yeah. I, they told watching? me, and it, they did tell me they weren't coming. I just thought it was funny that maybe they were, you know, one of them, I won't say which one of them, but one of them said, I'm having a date night tonight. And I thought. Could be either. I, well, you, well, there's two of them. So and one of them said that, and I thought, what a great way to spend a date night. I'm taking my wife to Bible class tonight. You know, I can't think of a better date night. Anyway, um, okay, so verse 1-6. Oh, yes, I read that. Verse 1-6. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. That was short. I didn't even get to the page. Um, yeah. Let's see here. And I'm in 2 Timothy all of a sudden. I don't know how I got there. Oh, I see my, my things came out. Hang on. Um, 1 Timothy, verse 6. From which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk. From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Okay, so these are the people that Paul was just warning about. Now he's saying that they've turned to idle talk. Okay, from which is speaking of the words of verse 4, which included love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. It is these from which some have strayed. The term here, yes, the term here translated as having strayed is a word used three times all by Paul and only in 1 and 2 Timothy. It means specifically off target. It is a deviating from God's target. This is uh, helps word studies. A deviating from God's target, meaning a line, by walking off that line. It further emphasizes the divine disapproval that goes with walking off God's line. You're on a line you're supposed to be what you know think of the guy in the military that could never walk in the you know he's over here doing this and everybody else is marching that way think of him okay that would be uh what, what's his name bill, bill murray stripes okay gomer pile. Uh, gomer pile that's a good one too okay they're they're not walking in the straight line okay and so that's who paul is referring to people like that these are people that have strayed uh what we are being presented here are true christians some may even have been once sound teachers, but they have strayed off the right path. Okay, and you'll see that. You'll, you know, there are people that have been preaching for years and years and years, and all of a sudden they start doing something that is just bizarre. Okay, and I could name four or five of them right now, people that you hear on the radio all the time. I won't give any of their names because you got to give them a little bit of grace, but they're not people that are just out there teaching falsities, but they just get suddenly get off into some bizarre thing that, where did that come from? Now, I will give a good example of this one. I, you know, you, you gotta know that when somebody calls himself the Bible answer man, that he better be spot on, okay? Hank Hanegraaff, I'll give his name because he's just gone completely off the, the 
ballpark or whatever the what what's the term reservation. reservation thank you okay Hank Hanegraaff used to be on the radio and maybe still is I I haven't listened to radio in years but he's a Bible answer man they give all these deep theological sounding arguments and, and everybody listened to him he was just the guy that you just listen to when you're riding in the car and all of a sudden Hank Hanegraaff goes from being an evangelical Christian the Bible answer guy to no, Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox or uh, Egyptian Orthodox. I can't remember. One of the two. And why did he do that? Does anybody know why he did that? Because he married a woman in that faith. That shows you he was never grounded in the first place. He's one of these people that Paul said. He, he's gone off the reservation. He's left the line. And I can't remember. It, was, it wasn't Catholicism. It was either Greek Orthodox. I, said, I know. It's just... Bizarre. But anyway, if you're going to follow a woman in her faith instead of sticking to your faith, that shows that you were not grounded in the first place. He knew the Bible. And I've said this about people. I've said this about people when you go to seminary. You will see this. You will see teachers that know the Bible exquisitely well, and they may not believe a thing they are telling you. They, they have no love for the Lord at all. And as I say, now this is a different thing, but atheists usually know the Bible better than most Christians because they really want to prove Christianity wrong. It's something deeply rooted in them. So you got to be careful. Just because somebody knows something, it does not mean that they have a heart for that thing. Okay? And watching the Bible answer man go from here everybody listening to him and answering all these questions, arguing over the minutest little thing. No, you got that wrong over to here. I, it's hard to even figure, but there you go. This is uh, what can happen. So be careful when you're watching people because all of a sudden off they go on a tangent. Next thing you know, they're over here or maybe they get back online and they, they yes, go ahead. Hebrews 2, 1. Hebrews 2. Drifted away. Yeah, drifted away. <laughs> Hebrews 2, 1. Drifted away. That's exactly right. You know, you want to stay focused on what you're doing, but and I, I talked about this either last week or two weeks ago. I am a doctrine person. I love sound doctrine. I love it as much as anything that I can think of doing during the day. Sound doctrine. But if that is my ultimate love, it doesn't mean anything. You have to love Jesus before everything else. Or your sound doctrine is just a lot of words that are, they may be correct, they may be inspiring to other people, but they are not sincere. And that's what Paul is saying here. Be sincere in what you believe. And it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard when you are all day long, all day long uh, being bombarded by people that want to tell you something crazy like that lady with the, the black Hebrew movement, okay? It's hard because you want to defend the Bible. You want to defend the faith and you can get frustrated at that. But at the same time, you need to remember Jesus above everything else, okay? And it, Remember that, Jesus. I'm always pointing to here, and it says, read your Bible, but what does it say on the uh, right there? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. My number one favorite verse in the Bible, because when you do, don't do that, everything else starts to collapse around you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, okay? Um, so where are we? Um, walking off God's line. Uh, may have been, they may have been once sound teachers. That's right, but they have strayed from the path. This must be true, because if they were not true Christians then the elders would have no authority over them. But Paul has told Timothy that he is to correct their ways. If they do have authority over him, then it implies that he believes they are true Christians and they need to be set on the right path, okay? The intent is to bring them back 
to the correct line and to bring them back to a state of approval in accord with God's will. That's what's important. I've talked about people in the past that are so far out, I would not include them as Christians in any way, shape, or form. Their doctrine excludes them from being true Christians. There's no authority over those people. There's no point in trying to bring them back to the faith because they have started their discussion with you on a completely apostate note. And there's no, they're arguing apples, you're arguing oranges, and there's no harmony between the two. And so uh, there's a difference between this, but these are true believers and they are in need of being brought back into the right way. Okay, so uh, for now though, their departure is that they have turned aside to idle talk. Paul's words once again. Here Paul uses a noun found only this once in scripture, which is well translated as idle talk. It is that which is vain and foolish, like a random babbler. It is the use of words which are unproductive and they are godless. He will use the adjective form of the word in Titus 1.10, which I don't remember what that says. So we'll go to Titus 1.10 real quickly to see the adjective form of the same word. Just I'm kind of curious what it is. Um, Timothy, and then we got Titus, and then we got chapter 1 and verse 10. Where are we? 8, 9. For there are many insubordinate, there it is, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Okay, once again, he's talking about circumcision, Judaizers, people introducing falsities. If you are saved by grace through faith, and then somebody comes along and says to you, well, you need to do this in order to be saved, they're obviously starting on the wrong path to begin with. They're already in it, they're already introducing something that is unsound, okay? Um, Paul addresses that very specifically all through the book of Galatians. It's such an important book, the way that he structures his words and his sentences to convey meaning, okay? So, um, uh, Titus 1.10. Paul will further define what this idle talk means in the coming verse. For now, just think of the countless websites, YouTube personalities, all these people that make stuff right up out of their own heads. No basis in reality at all. It's just stuff that they put out. And people, you know, I saw it on YouTube. It's got to be true. Well, that's what they're counting on. That's People are counting on that. This guy speaks well. He's got a great thing behind him. You know, uh, uh, he's in a nice room. He's got a great presentation. He must be sound. That's their idea of soundness, okay? So if they don't know the Bible, they are going to get duped by people like that if that's what they're looking for, okay? So, um... They pull stuff right out of their own heads and has no bearing at all on what is found in Scripture. Zero. I, there's just no no harmony at all with Scripture, and yet they're out there saying these things. With these new mu means of communication, anyone can say anything, no matter how unfounded it is. And they can get away with it. Um, you know, you think about uh, over the past couple years, uh, there was a movement in certain big tech companies to silence people and to take them off their platforms if they spoke about a certain particular issue. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Sure. Okay, so you tell me, what is more important? Somebody that is on, we'll say YouTube, and he is literally telling people something that will keep them from being saved, destroying the human soul of that person, and yet it's allowed. You know, which is more important? But we have freedom in this world to do those things. Now, some things we no longer have freedom for because big tech has 
cutting them out. But uh, you you got to know that these people are doing this. They're causing damage. It's not just that they're getting rich and they're controlling people. They're actually damaging people's chances of salvation, maybe completely removing it. And yet people, because they haven't learned the word first, they get duped by these people. So be very careful, okay? Um, and this is not to say, I say these things because you have to make comparisons in life, but this is not to say that I am a good teacher or that what I am telling you is correct. What I would tell you is that after we leave class, you should go read your Bible and make sure that what you heard today, something didn't sound right with what Charlie said. I need to check that out. This is important, okay? Because I could be one of those people, as handsome as I am. I mean, I could dupe a lot of people, I'm sure. So uh, you want to make sure that you are careful about checking and knowing in advance what you are being told, okay? Um, uh, so I talked about the um, new means of communication and with a generation of biblically illiterate people who are hungry to be told what to do, there's always a receptive audience ready to swallow up their teachings. Okay, there is the teaching, and I would agree with it, that the most literal biblical generation of all was the generation at the, uh, the UK and when America was getting started, right in those two countries, and add in Germany to some extent. I mean, they had Luther and, you know, they, they have some good uh, doctrine that came out of Germany after Luther got things going. Okay, you got John uh, Lang and you've got uh, Kyle and these other people. Okay, but probably the most literate biblical generations in the world were the UK and America at that time in history. Okay, I would agree with that. Uh, the people that learned the word and taught the word were very sound. And I'm not saying all of them, I'm just saying that they were, they were sound. And they trained their people properly, okay? They, they said the word of God is reliable. They're gonna give their analysis, even if it you know, wasn't as up-to-date as it is now, because we have more history. But despite that, despite the wealth of knowledge that these great teachers of that era had, you get just a few years into the American experiment. I'm talking like 65 years, and all of a sudden you've got people that are leading away millions of people. Millions of people. Joseph Smith, he starts this movement and off he goes to uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, right? And you've got these people, all within about a 20 year period, you've got these people that are complete heretics and they're starting up these giant denominations. I'm talking about today they are, but they're starting up and they're pulling people away simply because the people did not listen to literate teachers and they were not willing to check the Bible themselves. And everybody by that time in history had a family Bible. Sure. Everybody. I mean, America was so filled with Bibles and how many of them just sat on the shelf and gathered dust? Or, you know, they were pulled out when somebody got baptized or when somebody got married, they scrolled on the front of that Bible. Other than that, there, you know, we get busy. America's starting to grow. We've got to, you know, expand and we've got work to do all day and there's not time to read the Bible. I'll do it tomorrow. And, and uh, it, it, Don't compromise your daily Bible reading. If you want to compromise anything else in your life, I would not compromise your time with Jesus and your Bible reading. Those two things are the most important thing that you can hold on to, all right? Anything else? Well, I don't have time to clean the garage this week. Great, okay? If you see Charlie Garrett's garage, you would know that once you've compromised that, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, so, uh, uh, but that's fine. My garage is almost impassable at this point. 
But um, I'd rather compromise on that than on my daily Bible reading and my time with Jesus, okay? So don't do that. Don't compromise it. But um, this is a problem. Uh, I better read that again. And with the generation of biblically illiterate people who are hungry to be told what to do, there is always a receptive audience ready to swallow up their teachings. Okay, this was a problem all the way back to the inception of the church. It is a problem which has continued unabated until modern times, and it is a problem which has literally exploded in scope with the advent of each new type of invention that has arisen. Every single new invention. You know, you've got TV, and sure, you've got good teachers on TV. When I was a kid, we could watch people, and uh, you know, but then you get the people on TV that were charismatic and they had these fancy clothes and they, you know who I'm talking about, I grew up with them and that means you did too. And uh, they, they were there presenting a semi-biblical model and yet they were just making millions and millions and millions of dollars and they were just doing the craziest stuff with their lives when they weren't on TV, right? Okay, so I, once again, you just have to be aware of what you're looking at and who you are believing. Uh, life application. Today there is almost no end to the amount of contradictory information concerning biblical teachings one can choose to listen to. There's no end to it. All right. The only way to avoid being completely misled by any of the, these misguided souls is to actually, and I know it's hard, I know that it takes away your time watching TV, but it is to actually pick up your Bible and read it constantly, not just one time, constantly, okay? Now I read my morning Bible, I do it every single day, it's the first thing I do, actually I get the computer going because there are certain things I want to get going while I'm reading the Bible. If not, then I've wasted five minutes, so they can go. So I, I, I turn it on, I get a couple things that are started, and, and then I sit and I read the Bible, and then I have another Bible that I read in it, place, which I won't tell you about, but it's in the morning, okay, and then in the, uh, uh, the library. Yeah, it's a library. <laughs> and then in the evening, I have another Bible that I read as well. So I got these, these Bibles that I'm reading, and uh, uh, sometimes there's overlap with the morning and the evening one, but anyway. Um, uh, so read the Bible. Set designated times in your life and follow through with those designated times. If you say, I'm going to make a commitment to read the Bible at this time or in this place for this long, don't compromise on it. Because as soon as you do, tomorrow it'll be easier to compromise again. Sure. And the next day will be easier. And pretty soon you've just walked away from your commitment. It's just like, just like a New Year's resolution. Mm -hmm. Everybody that makes New Year's resolutions is really gung-ho for the first 10 days. And after that, well, today I don't have time and it's done. That's it end of the New Year's resolution, okay? If you are going to do that with the Bible, you will never be a competent student of the Bible, ever, okay? Read the Bible, read the Bible, and then read it some more, okay? Um, let's see here, read it constantly. The more it is read, the less likely one will be duped by crazy ideas which are put forth for public consumption, okay? Um, I understand that there are a lot of people out there that love to listen to some of the more famous prophecy update teachers. And each one of them has their own view about what is going on, okay? And that becomes their source of information. So when they come to something that this teacher says and it's not the same as this teacher, they will write to the teacher and say, well, you know, this guy says this. They're not going to the Bible. They're going to 
somebody else that is just giving an analysis of the Bible. If they know the Bible before they watch these things, then they would probably not even question. They would just say, I know that's wrong and I'm just going to not listen to it. So be careful to read your Bible and do not compromise in your Bible reading. Okay, so l let me open this because the last one was so quick you were done before I... Okay, one seven. Uh, this is a little longer. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Yeah, close. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Much more... Yeah, yeah flowing. More of a... Yeah. Uh, okay, got the knife and stabbed it in there very well. Okay, uh, one seven. Paul now chastises the group of people to whom he referred to in verses 3 and 4, and who he then referred to specifically again in the previous verse, verse 6. They are those who taught, here it is, another doctrine. Okay, so there is one doctrine. The Bible has one doctrine in each issue. There is one doctrine. Okay, that doesn't mean that everybody is going to agree on what that one doctrine is, but God is not fickle. When he gives something, there is an answer to it. Um, uh, okay, was it this, this week? It's next week. Something that we talked about um, long time ago. Long, long, long time ago, we talked about. And it's in next week's sermon. You guys are going to be gone, aren't you? Okay. And this week you're going to be gone, so you won't see this one either. But um, next week's sermon, uh, there's something that we talked about that um, uh, it, it's not a doctrine, but it's, I, I will tell you, and then you can go and see if you can figure it out, because it's very clear. Gideon takes the soldiers to the uh, pool of Harod, right? And uh, they, what is it that he did to Drink. weed them out? Drinking water. Yeah, Okay. And so there's always been this debate. What is the big debate? The, the 300. Okay, the way that they drank. What is the big debate? There's one of two sides on how they drink. Well, yeah, that, that's what they do, but there are two views on what that means. No, 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 no. The state of the people. The state of the people. No, 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 no. Down. Well, no, that's the action. I'm talking about what does that prove about the people? There are two views. Oh, that they are uh, either the uh, best of warriors or the worst of warriors. And, and there's two camps, and their yeah. scholars come down on one side or another. <laughs> either the, they're good. Either they're the 300 very best or the 300 very worst. And the Lord is going to give himself glory through those 300. Right. That's the two camps. Yeah, I think we spoke about this in our video. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you spoke in the video, but I, I know we spoke, you and I, about yeah, yeah. it when you were doing the video. Okay? So, if you want the answer to that question, that will be in next week's sermon. Okay? And I will explain it. Oh, I know the answer. I, it, there, it's not like, oh, I found it. I know that it is correct. It, it, so... Here's one camp and here's the other camp. You guys read that passage and decide what do you think that passage is telling you and why. And once you hear the explanation, you're going to say, I got that. But it took me going word by word through it. And once it was done, it's done. I know that I, I know somebody will come along and say, no, I disagree with that. And so we still have two doctrines and, you know, God isn't fickle. But there's one answer to that dilemma. I want you to tell me what is that 
passage telling you. Don't email me. Don't tell me in advance. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you when I say tell me is to tell yourself. And then when you watch the sermon, you can say, okay, I got that. Okay. What is that passage telling you? Because two camps are adamant about these are the 300 worst soldiers because, and I'll tell you why come, people come to this conclusion. The people lapped like a dog weren't being attentive. Okay. The people that were on their knees weren't being attentive. So they're saying, well, no, that's not right. Okay. There's one or the other. They, they do something and that shows that they're either the very best soldiers or the very worst. Read the passage and tell me what it's telling you. But don't tell me. Tell yourself and then watch the sermon, okay? Because I know, and what you tell me is just something that I... Okay. I, but it's very interesting, though. My point is that when you have a doctrine, it doesn't matter what the doctrine is. The rapture, there is one proper doctrine to the rapture. Either I'm teaching it correctly or I'm teaching it wrong, Okay. I adamantly say that my doctrine on the rapture is correct because that's what I believe, and I wouldn't teach something I didn't believe. But there is one doctrine. Either it is pre-trib or it's not. Either it is mid-trib or it's not. See, there's one doctrine. God is not fickle. We are the ones that don't study the word or know the context of all the other verses in the Bible that point to that doctrine. Okay, so... Um, that's what you need to do. And you cannot learn that unless you read the Bible. When you hear somebody that's got it wrong, you know it's wrong because you've read the whole Bible and you know the typology from the Old Testament. You know what Paul is saying here and why it aligns properly with 1 Corinthians 15 and et cetera, et cetera. The more you read the Bible, the less you will be misled by whatever the doctrine is. Okay, that's how important it is. All right, one doctrine, even if there are a million answers, to that doctrine. There's only one. Okay, so um, where are we? Three and four, they gave fables and endless genealogies. Uh, they, he says, he now says they are desiring, Paul's words, to be teachers of the law. They have strayed and have turned aside to idle talk. This now, unlike verse five, is speaking of the law of Moses. It's not speaking of the command that he had just given. Okay, this is speaking of the law of Moses. It refers to a different word than that translated as commandment there. Okay, why would Paul bring in the law of Moses if we are in the church and under grace? Why would he do that? Because it's the only scripture they had. That is true. That's it. There was no New Testament. He's got to use something as an example for the people to understand. Okay, so when he speaks about the law or when somebody refers, what does the law say? He's quoting something that exists, not something that it's now. To come, right? Yeah, that's until it's written. Until he writes these letters, all they have is the words of the apostles. But to establish their doctrine, they understood what the law said in order to show how it relates to Jesus and His grace. Okay, so they're going to do this all through the the, the what? Yeah, prophets, prophets too. No, because yeah you will see that jesus will say what does the law say and then you'll cite isaiah for example okay so the and i explained this in a sermon a long time ago and most people probably don't remember this but when moses he redid they they disobeyed moses went back up the mountain and he said behold i'm going to do something with this people that has never been done in history okay and when he gave that charge to israel and he the words he used very clearly showed that the law of Moses is not the five books of Moses. It is a continuing thing that goes all through Israel's history. So when Isaiah speaks, thus says the Lord, that is included in the body of the law. And that's why Jesus could do that. 
what his law is saying. He cites something from Isaiah or whatever. It might, might be Paul that did that or whatever. But the, the word, the people in the New Testament will say, what does uh, the law say? And then he'll cite something outside of Moses. It's because everything up until the end of Malachi is the law of Moses. It is the body, the burden that is laid upon the people of Israel. Okay, and that's why it ends, if you uh, notice in Malachi, which is not the last uh, book of the Jewish Bible. Okay, they structure it differently, and Malachi is one of the prophets, and the last book is two chronicles. But Malachi is the last received book, regardless. Okay, how does Malachi end? It, it ends with, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. It ends on a curse. If that's the end of God's law, that's a very scary thing to end your law with. Got that? The last prophetic word of the Old Testament received by a prophet is, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. What does the New Testament end with? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It all the way through the Bible. The very first thing that is introduced into Scripture when speaking to man are words of law. The law ends with a curse. The New Testament begins with the grace of God in Christ, Jesus being born, and then it ends with it, It's law versus grace. That is what God is telling us all the way through. All the types that you will see in the Old Testament will come back to that in some way or another. The typology doesn't deviate because God is telling us a story. Law, grace, law, grace, and you can't have one without the other. Okay? It was so, Paul citing it. 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, 21. Paul citing it. Thank you. Oh, you found it. Good. Yeah. Go ahead and read that. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues. There you go. Paul says, in the law it is written. Okay. Isaiah. He's okay. quoting Isaiah. Okay, so thank you. Because I said Jesus and I thought maybe that wasn't right. Because, yes. So, um, John, a question about that. That's when Paul is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah, is it the first time that something like that was said by Isaiah? Or was it said before by Moses too, and Isaiah is just no. That's why I said it too in John ten thirty four. John ten thirty four. Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. And that's oh, there you go. That's the Psalms. That's right. That's not in. That's not in the law. I mean, not in the five books of Moses. It is in the Psalms. It is all a codified body that the Lord specifically said. He didn't say it explicitly. You know, you have to infer it. But what he's saying is that everything will be building. So when what does it do? What does Joshua do? Okay. Joshua enters words into the book, okay? And so you're going to see this throughout the Old Testament. These are being brought into what is the law for Israel. The law of Moses is the beginning of it, but it's all the law. So Jesus did do it. Okay, I'm he glad. It, and he did it again. He did oh. it in John 15, 25. John 15, says, too. me without a reason. It says, uh, but this is to fulfill what is written in their, in their law. They hated me without a reason. Without a reason. Again, again Psalm, uh, Psalm 35. Psalm 35. So yeah. he's calling the, uh, the Psalms the law. Uh, Paul is calling yeah. Isaiah the law. Okay, so good. I'm glad that I'm glad we got but, out of the way because I hate to not have how that. How sad it is that the Talmud is what's basically referred to if you're going to talk, if I talk to any of my Jewish friends. Oh, that's right. Like, they'll, they'll reference that and I'm like going like, whoa. That's the codification of Jewish like, law. When they were right. dispersed, this is what held them together as a people. Mm -hmm. And it does refer to the, the Bible, but it, that is not the focus of it. It is just taking their culture and their lives and codifying it into something that they have to keep them unified. Right. And if you're relying on that, 
then, then yeah, then, then you're talking you apples and oranges. That's right, apples and oranges. You can't do it. You have to get them to understand that Moses established them as a people, that the law of Moses all the way through to Malachi is binding on them. The Talmud is man's writing. And if they can't come to that conclusion, you will never, ever change their mind. It's not going to happen. It has to be based on the word, and the word was given by the spirit. So it has to be based on what the spirit has given us. So anyway, um, good. I, thank you for that, because I'm, I'm, I just don't want to say something that isn't correct, but I was correct. Jesus does it, and Paul does it. Okay, so... Um, Speaking of the law of Moses, it refers to a different word. The single Greek word translated as teachers of the law is used only three times. First in Luke 5, 17, when speaking of the Pharisees. Next, it is used in Acts 5, 34, when speaking of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of the ruling council. So this one word is used those two times, and now Paul uses it to speak of those who would desire to be in such a position but who are obviously contrasted to them. This is evident from the words understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. That's Paul's words, okay? These people were covetous of having the respect and authority of someone like a Pharisee, okay? I want to be like a Pharisee, so I'm going to be like them, and I'm going to mistreat the Bible, but people will think that I'm telling the truth because I'm Jewish. And we've got this all over the world today. We've got Jewish people that are teaching things as if they know what they're talking about, and they don't. But because they're Jewish, people flock to them, simply because of their culture and their heritage, and maybe they speak Hebrew, maybe they don't, that's less important, but if they do, oh boy, this guy speaks Hebrew, he must be a good teacher, and people flock after them. This is what Paul is speaking about right here, okay? So, um, the covetous of having the respect, the law was given to lead people to Christ. That is explicit in the book of Galatians. It is a tutor to lead us to Christ, not to be an end in and of itself, nor was it to be used as a spiritual map for discerning secrets which God has hidden in it, okay? People use the Bible like that. The Bible codes was out there for a couple of years and people were just going crazy looking for these patterns and stuff and, and they're looking for something that God has you know, tucked away that only they will ever find. Listen. There's plenty to be found in the Word that nobody has found yet, and it's right in the clear text, all right? Bible codes are fine. Uh, acrostics, doing acrostic searches is fine. But in the end, the main thing is to know the Word. All these other things are just curiosities, but they are not for setting doctrine, okay? So, um, let's see here. Where was I now? Um, spiritual map. It is true that the law contains hidden pictures and patterns. We see it every week but they are all intended to lead a person to Christ, not to magical insights and divinations. Okay, the Bible is not a book of incantations. It's not meant for divinations. Unfortunately, this is what they were doing. More unfortunately, this is still what they do to this day. Anybody heard of Kabbalism? Kabbalah? Kabbalah, yeah, okay. Kabbalists use the Bible to obtain mystical insights. Christians use it in an attempt to determine genetic codes, prophetic codes, rapture dates, and the like. The list of such abuses is almost endless. But the Bible is not for predicting outcomes. That's not what it's for. 
The reason why we know from typology what we saw last week is that there is a seven-year tribulation is because the Bible tells us that there will be a seven-year tribulation. He just put into typology what was going to happen. That's not predicting an outcome. That's affirming what his word already teaches us. See the difference? The word tells us what is coming. God has put typology in the Old Testament to show us what the word proclaims so that we know when we read this and we see this, we can say, I know that my analysis of this, which is in the New Testament, is correct. Okay, That's what that's for. It's an affirming book. It's not a book that's to be used for mysticism or for uh, predicting the future. That's not what it's used for. But, you know, I'll tell you one thing. That's unfortunately because he was uh, wrote much more on theology than he wrote on science is the greatest scientist every year is voted as every year Einstein. they do. What? Einstein probably. Isaac Newton. They say he's the greatest scientist that ever lived. Every year they have that big vote and they say, yep, it's it, he, nobody's compared to him yet. And yet he wrote a lot more on theology than he did on science. However, he did use the Bible to try to predict things with it. You know, he, was, he would read Daniel and he says, well, the, you know, the whatever's coming in year 20, 30, or, you know, he, he was always trying to figure out the future. That's not really what the Bible is for. The Bible is for telling us that we know what the future is from what it already says. Okay. And one and, other thing, too, that when prophecy comes to be, you know who to give the credit to. Oh, absolutely. You give God the credit. That's the point and purpose of prophecy. He even says that explicitly in the prophets, you know. Who has said these things? I have revealed it. Do they say anything? They're just wood. They don't say anything. Let it say something, good or evil. But the Lord says, I am telling you these things so that you know when they happen that I am behind it. Okay? And that's why people love to read Nostradamus. If we have Nostradamus, we don't need the Bible, right? That, that's just one of those things. It's just like an attack against Scripture by people that read Nostradamus because they just want to know the future and they want to be able to predict the future. Yeah. It's not in the Bible, so he said it. We're going to go with that. Do you know um, how, how much he got wrong? Oh, it's everything. Ridiculous. Yeah, like, just, like three things kind of right. Yeah. Like, you know, so. Yeah. Crazy. Anyhow. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Uh, intended, yeah, lead a person to Christ. Okay. So, um, Kabbalism, Christians use it for codes, rapture dates, all that nonsense. The list of such abuses is almost endless. But the Bible is not for predicting outcomes. It is there to reveal after prophetic events occur, just what you just said, that God was in, the, was in control of those events all along. That's what we have the Bible for. Only afterward are such things discernible, okay? That's why we're not going to know what the rapture is, is because only after it happens is it going to be discernible, all right? Um, it, it's very sad the amount of time that people spend on things that they are just wasting their time on. But uh, read your Bible, read your Bible, much better. It is a source of pride for people to claim that they have special insights into the future, or into the mechanics of God's providential workings in the stream of time. And so they pursue these unhealthy avenues of interpretation without truly understanding what they say, Paul's words, nor the things which they affirm. Okay, that's what they do and that's what they should not be doing. It is to be remembered that Paul is speaking specifically of people who have been saved in these, by Christ in these verses and yet they have gone off the deep end in their theology, all right? They've completely departed from what is sound thinking. 
And I know people like this, you know, I've gone to college with some of them, and all they do now is talk about the rapture. It just consumes them. It, that's it. So read your Bible. Don't worry about things like that. Uh, let's see here. Further, it certainly encompasses any misapplication of the law in their teaching. Therefore, it includes those who reinsert the law or parts of it as a mandatory part of Christian living. Okay, and I love to bring this one up from time to time because it's so obvious is tithing, right? Tithing was a precept under the law, but they don't want to give up on tithing. And so they just keep beating you over the head. When you say, well, that's in the law and the law is obsolete, then they have to go and make up more excuses to justify tithing because they don't want to give up on demanding tithes. Okay, so they say, well, it's um, uh, doctrine of first mention. mention that's right. right. Okay, it's mentioned first in Abraham before the law and therefore you must observe it. And I like to remind people that there is no doctrine of first mention because the only point that they use in that regard is tithing. If they were to be honest, then they would tell people that you have to marry your uh, brother's wife because your brother died and have children. They'd take every one of those things that is said prior to the law that is mandated in the law, and they would say you have to do that as well. But that's not what they do. They say that the tithing is doctrine of first mention, and therefore you must do that, and all the others they skip over. Okay, There is no doctrine of first mention. They will give you every possible reason in the planet or on the planet why you must tithe. It's precept of the law. It was never mandated before the law. It is a precept of the law, and the law of Moses is done. Okay, so uh, it's, that's just one of them. But people will take their pet peeves from the law, and they will reimpose it today. Feasts of the Lord, you got to observe them. Sabbath day worship, got to observe it. On and on and on. One point or many points, it's exactly what Paul argues against emphatically. Okay, so um, this includes, oh, here it is, feast days, Sabbath observances, dietary restrictions, and so forth. Uh, you know, I had neighbors that were very sound in their theology. They got most of it right, but they were adamant that you couldn't eat pork. And I thought, where do you get this from? You know, oh, well, the teacher said in the book of Acts, once again, teaching the book of Acts as prescriptive will lead you down that wrong path. Okay, somebody taught them something years ago, and so they wouldn't eat pork. All right, never mind that. Well, anyway, um, very nice people, but they, they've been gone for years. They died many years ago. Very nice, though. But one little thing they just had to grab onto. I've got to do this to be right before God. That we can't let go of ourselves. We can't let go of our deeds. And it's just a problem. We need to just trust that Jesus has got it all figured out for us and that he saved us and we're going to live for him now. Forget all that stuff. The law is annulled, it is obsolete, and it is set aside. That is in Hebrews 7, 18, Hebrews 8, 13, and Hebrews 10, 9. Explicitly in the book of Hebrews, the law is set aside, obsolete, and annulled. In two, uh, two, uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, it says that the law is nailed to Christ. In um, Ephesians, I'm forgetting the verse right now, Ephesians chapter 1, explicit fulfilled okay these are explicit references to the law being done and yet people cling to the law in one form or another okay therefore such people in the church are to be shunned not emulated or adored but we don't want to read the bible in order to show their error paul makes another compound word in the greek first was uh, nomo didaskalos, or law teachers. That's the one I referred to earlier. Hello, Faith. How are you? Good. 
All right. Thank you. And you have a wonderful evening. All right. Um, so law teachers, in contrast to this, he says, dia bebai umai. It's a real long word. I probably didn't even get close to the pronunciation or they affirm. So you have the law teachers and now here they affirm. What they wanted to be is not at all what they were, nor what they taught. Paul's choice of words actually becomes a strong rebuke. He uses the same word once again in Titus 3 verse 8 in a positive sense towards Titus, asking him to affirm constantly what is correct concerning belief in God. Affirm constantly. And, you know, sometimes I go home and I say, I wonder if I said that too much, okay? Stay away from the law. Stay away from the law. I keep saying the same thing class after class after class. Well, that's what Paul tells Titus to do. Affirm constantly because people need to hear it again and again because they're going to go out and they're going to go to another church on Sunday or they're going to go to, uh, you know, the radio and listen to somebody on. Affirm constantly the same proper doctrine, okay? Life application. Proper theology will always be Christ-centered, always. There is never a time that works-based theology will be sound, nor is there any place for using the Bible as a form of mystical insight or divination. Those who proclaim secret codes within the text can be used for such things are to be rejected, okay? Only when patterns and pictures reveal Christ and God's redemptive plans, which are worked through him, are they to be considered valid. And there are billions of patterns in the Bible to use. We've done that with acrostics in the book of Esther. Okay, we do it with chiasms. They're all through the Bible. Every time we come to one that I've personally found, I always put it into the sermon. Okay, they're very interesting. They show you what's on God's mind, what he's doing. The one in Hosea is so beautiful. I won't refer to it in this coming, this sermon, this Sunday, but it's the information I give you is from a chiasm that spans that. It's where uh, the Lord says, you are not my people, and then later he says, you are my people. And the way that it's spanned out is revealed in what I will show you in the sermon on Sunday, even though I don't refer to the chiasm. God is telling us something. Paul explains it in the New Testament, and then Peter explains the second half in the New Testament. And it's right there in that chiasm. It's beautiful to see when you see it that God is revealing the history and the redemption of the Gentiles and the Jews, okay? So, uh, great stuff. That kind of stuff is valid. It's right there in the Bible. It's black and white. It's not something you're pulling out and saying, this is a secret uh, that only I can find or that, you know, that's not what the Bible's for. So, uh, verse 1 eight. Have you lost your... Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, I was oh, oh, looking up the, the letter key. It's, it's an X or a T. What is it? Oh, key. Chiasm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a Greek. Greek. That's it's a Greek letter, X. not a Hebrew. Okay, yeah, key. Like, yeah, it looks like an X, chapter. and so they call it chiasm because sorry. Greek letter key. You threw me off. Oh, that. that's okay. Eight. <laughs> okay. Yes, I am still here. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Okay, but we know that the law is good if one uses it yeah. lawfully. So you say properly. This one says lawfully. Okay, verse 1-8. Paul stated something similar to this in Romans 7-12. There he was making a point about how sin uses the commandment to deceive a person, bringing about death. That's what I was listening to last week, and it was so exciting, and then I said, 
chapter eight when I was thinking of chapter seven and eight because I listened to both of them and Burke got me on that. Thank you. Because um, I don't want people to go looking in the wrong place, but sin uses the law in a certain way against us, okay? There he was making a point about how sin uses the commandment to deceive a person, bringing about death. That's exactly what happened to Adam. You got the law, it's been given. On the day that you eat of it, you will die. The very first words ever uttered by God that are recorded in scripture are words of law. And then what did Satan do? He used the law to deceive the man and it brought about death. Exactly what Paul explains right here or right there in Romans. In his concluding thought, he then said, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Here, as in Romans, one reason he is certainly giving this statement is as a testimony that he is not an enemy of the law, which is what everybody charges Paul with all day and twice on Saturday, okay? Constantly. He's an enemy of the law, and that one guy that emailed me, I told you a month or so ago, he's saying that Paul is the Antichrist, and you got to throw out all of Paul's writings, and if you don't, you're going to go to heck and all that, and it, it, Paul is not an enemy of the law. He is an upholder of the law because Christ fulfilled it in his stead. He upholds what Christ has done, and now he says it's done because Christ has done it, okay? So, in Acts 21, 21, he was accused of exactly this. But he vigorously defends the law as being good. However, it is the proper use of the law which he defends time and again. He will state one particular purpose of the law in the next verse. We probably won't get to that this week because we only got 15 minutes. But, but for now, a second reason he is introducing this thought is to defend against the improper uses of the law, which he has already identified, and which he does all through his writings. This is improper, and here is why. It is not intended for inane arguments. It is not intended for pursuing endless genealogies. It is not intended for stirring up disputes. And it is not intended to put you back into bondage that Christ has already fulfilled for you. These are things the law is not meant for people that have come to Christ or that are trying to come to Christ. God has revealed himself through the giving of the law. None of such things is in accord with this self-revelation. Endless genealogies, you're not exalting God, okay? He is God. These uses of the law are ungodly. As noted, Paul will explain one avenue of why the law was given in the next verse. And yes, we're going to have time. We're going to get four verses done today, are we? Wow. Wow, no, we might not. That's going to be a little too long. I don't think I'm going to get through there. Um, we'll stop with this one because that's a little long. It's a page, almost two pages. Well, then let me ask this question. I'm uh, not done here, but go ahead. Well, you were saying that um, uh, genealogies, back when Paul wrote this, you could look into all the Jewish genealogies. Oh, and we still can had... today because it, the book of Chronicles. And... Okay, to an extent, but wasn't yeah. a lot of that lost with the... Uh, the oh, yeah, the their, actual, their actual genealogy, each individual's genealogy, that was lost at the burning of the temple. Right. That's correct. Okay, and so uh, we don't know the genealogy of any Jew on this planet today. None. Okay, we do know who the Levites are because of DNA. They can identify that. They know who the Cohen, you know, they all have the name Cohen. Mm -hmm. So we know they're of the priestly tribe, but how do we identify that? They can tell by the, the DNA of these people, they belong to a certain particular DNA. The name Cohen normally and almost always yeah. corresponds with that. They know this, but they don't have the genealogical records of these right. people. Right. There's only one Jew 
on the entire planet today that has his genealogical record. One, Jesus. Okay, and he's not actually on the planet, but I'm saying he, he's here, okay? So that's the only Jew. He's the only Jew in the entire planet that has his genealogy recorded. It's right there in the Bible. So we can't say that we don't know his genealogy. No other Jew does, and so we cannot prove that he is a qualified Messiah. But Jesus, we can. Do you think God made a mistake there, or is he telling us something, right? Now, you want to know who the Temple Mount belongs to? It tells you right in the book of Kings. David bought it. And then who is the seed of David? When he comes back, that's his property. There's going to be no contesting that. He owns it. He is the rightful heir to David's throne. And therefore, he owns the Temple Mount, which was purchased. And the purchase is recorded not once, but twice in Scripture. What were you going to say, Bert? I was going to say he told us twice, Matthew and Luke. That's right, Matthew and Luke. We've got his genealogy carefully recorded on both sides. And he told us twice about the purchase of the Temple Mount. He is telling us something about this man that walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. This is my son. He is the rightful heir. Okay? All these other people can make all the things up that they want, but it doesn't mean that it's based in reality. Good point. So, um, as noted, Paul will explain uh, the one avenue of why the law was given in the next verse. However, with the coming of Christ... And in the completion of his work under the law, the law is fulfilled and it is annulled. Anybody know what the word annulled means? To make void. Yeah, done. It means to make void. And that's explicit. That's not me who made that up. That is recorded right in Scripture. Just in case somebody wants to, I'll read the three that I cited a minute ago. John 7.18, I'm sorry, Hebrews 7.18. Um, boy, Hebrews 6. 7, 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling. He's speaking of the law there, annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. I'm going to go down a little bit, and it says, on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, law versus grace, law versus grace, through which we draw near to God. Hebrews 8, 13. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to vanish away. I explained that in sermon last week. Hebrews 10, verse 9, it says, He takes away, speaking of the law, he's talking about the sacrifices, uh, right here, verse 10, uh, 10, 1, for the law having a shadow. Now he gets down to verse uh, uh, 9 and he says, He takes away the first, he's talking about the law, that he may establish the second. You can't have one while the other is going. And so he has taken away the first to establish the second. For Israel, the first is still binding until they come to Christ. And then they will be established in the grace of God. Okay, that's explicit. This is all explicit in Scripture. Everything that is coming upon Israel is already told them in advance. They don't need mediums and they don't need sorcerers and they don't need uh, Talmudic scholars to know it. It is written right in this word what is going to happen to them as a people. Right there, if they will just pick up the Bible and read it. Okay, so all above all else, the law was a stepping stone to lead us to the person and work ooh, of Jesus Christ. Understanding this, Paul's particular reason for the giving of the law in the next verse, which we will go to next week, will make all the more sense. Life application. Just because something is good does not mean that it is still necessary. When Paul says the law is good, he's not saying that it's necessary. 
okay? And people, unfortunately, don't think that far ahead, and they say, see, says it's good, you got to observe it. If someone wants to get to Paradise Island, he will need a way of getting there. A bridge for this purpose would be considered good. Once he has arrived at the destination, the bridge is no longer needed to get there. It has fulfilled its intended purpose. This is the error of those who cling to the law of Moses after coming to Christ. They've taken a bridge. They've come to the island. They don't need the bridge anymore, unless they want to go back off the island. But if you want to stay in paradise, you certainly don't need the law, okay? But you start teaching law, the people that have never heard of the goodness of God in Christ are going to be right off the island. They're not going to be invited. The law is no longer a working bridge. Christ crossed that bridge, and then he offered us a new bridge. At the same time, the old, guess what, has been dismantled. And yet people continuously attempt to cross by a bridge which is no longer in service. When I was a kid, Old Stickney Point Road is where the bridge is. Now it's New Stickney Point Road. That's why when you get on to, um, uh, Clark. Clark Road, you'll see that it makes kind of a funny turn there. It's because Old Stickney Point was the bridge we used to go to. And I remember when we were kids, after church, we would go to the vegetable shop where all those cute little houses are now. They're like shops, yeah, cute yeah. little things. Mm -hmm. There was a vegetable shop there and had big open doors. And so while they were shopping, we would get cardboard boxes and we were on the only hill in the state of Florida and we'd zip down the grass on the side of the bridge, right? That bridge isn't there anymore. Right. It's now New Stickney Point Road and Old Stickney Point Road is empty. It's a little park there. Okay, and that's where the water to Siesta Key comes under the uh, bay. But that's all it's good for. There's, It's not used for anything anymore because it's not there. And yet people keep reintroducing the law. They keep saying, we need to do this thing. So, where was I? Um, oh, I right here. Uh, the law is no longer a working bridge. Christ crossed that bridge, and then he offered us the new bridge. And yet, people continuously attempt to cross by a bridge which is no longer in service. Paradise Island is forever out of their reach because they have failed to properly use the new and better bridge. You want to observe the law, you will never, ever make it to heaven. It is not going to happen. Unless you were saved and then fall back on law observance, but you will get no credit at all. Paul says that explicitly in Galatians. Zero credit for being a law observer. Zero. But if you have not come to Christ and you think you are coming to Christ through observance of the law, you will never, ever, ever make it to Paradise Island. And that's just a term meaning heaven. It will not happen because the bridge is gone. Please understand this. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Oh, I'm fuming in my heart right now because of this. It's just it's such an important thing. Oh, okay, let's... Uh, yeah, I know. you got to keep saying it. Everybody will say goodbye bye now, and then we'll back up and wave you out. Okay, here we go. We're going to go to a break. Wait, what's that? Oh.